if you were here last week, you know we had one voice. You can see where this is going. We're, we're exploring with this idea of the pieces, the individual parts of ourselves, and then the wholeness that's created. The other thing I um, just want to make sure you all know that I didn't say during the offering is that Meg Riley is the senior minister of the Church of the Larger Fellowship, and Meg Riley is a member of First Universalist. So it's a ministry near and dear to my heart, and it's in some ways, um, I think her ministry is probably supported by this church's ministry. So I wanted you to have that connection. So we've been exploring the theme of salvation in this month of January, a different angle, a different perspective each Sunday. And what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do with all of these themes we engage, is take what is often a dead word for many of us and make it come alive, make it be relevant and meaningful in our lives today. And we've been suggesting that salvation is actually something that we're in need of, Not that we're in need of a savior, per se, or that we have to believe a certain thing in order to be saved, but rather that salvation is about wholeness. It is about moving toward wholeness in our own lives, with our families, in our our work environments, the wider community, the world. It is about moving toward a kind of wholeness. It is about the here and now. It is not about some distant eternity or life in heaven. And the twin partner of salvation, its yin-yang peace, if you will, is brokenness. Brokenness uh, comes in many names. Some would call it sin. I think brokenness works just fine. But the point is that this idea of brokenness is about those places in our lives where we have fallen short of who we aspire to be, where we have had a target mapped out in kind of the bullseye of our life, and we missed it. We, we, we failed to live up to what we wanted to be or do. We hurt someone. We let someone down. We betrayed our values, perhaps. So there is this sense of brokenness that is part of the human condition, and it is the dancing partner of salvation, if we understand salvation as moving toward wholeness. And I can tell you, honestly, As a minister and a father and a partner and a son, there have been a lot of times where I have fallen short of where I want to be, times I have felt um, broken and wanted to move toward wholeness. And so to reflect that reality in our lives this month, we're building, you see it taking shape slowly up here, we're going to build a sculpture of these broken pieces of CD. And many of you received a broken piece of CD when you came in today with a, a Sharpie marker. And I invite you to reflect on your life, those places where you feel broken, where you want to move toward wholeness. It could be a place of grief or a a betrayal that you want to correct or somebody you want to forgive, but something in your life that feels broken, that you want to move toward wholeness. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll collect these and we'll work with Fazia Khan, an artist in the congregation, to out of all of these individual pieces of brokenness create something that's whole create something of wholeness and beauty. So watch it take shape over the coming Sundays. And behind that idea of writing something down, a a brokenness, is this notion that we are saved, we are made whole in part, when we can honestly embrace and confess or share those places of brokenness, where we can share our yearnings and doubts and questions. I also want to tell you as a side note, if you haven't heard 
January 2nd and the 9th, those sermons, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast online because it will give all of this a much richer, deeper texture. Uh, It will enrich your understanding of salvation. And I also want to take just a minute here to give a shout out to our podcast listeners because there are about 150 to 200 people every Sunday that listen online after Kate or I or Ruth has preached. And so will you just join me for a second to say, hey, podcast folks. Yeah, because they're out there. They're a part of this community worshiping with us this morning. It might be people who are working on the treadmill or putting their kids down to bed or you know, in their car driving somewhere hearing these sermons. And I invite our podcast listeners to uh, let us know where you are in the, in the country, around the world, wherever you might be. Back to salvation. <laughs> if, if, it, if it hasn't been made clear... Unitarian Universalism and First Universalist Church believe that salvation is something that happens here and now. It's something that happens in this world. And in case we haven't made this next part clear, we also believe that this church can offer disciplines or practices, spiritual practices, that can help save us. Joining a small group is one of those ways. Last Sunday, I talked about the small group experience. It's a spiritual discipline of listening to yourself, to that still small voice inside of listening to others. And it's a process of of taking the insides out. And that process can be saving. Here's where I want to go today as we look at another angle of salvation. I want to pick up a thread from Ruth's sermon from January 2nd where she uh, talked about salvation being misunderstood, I would say, as an individual thing. Uh, The notion that if you come to church and sing the right hymns and believe the right things and say the right words, that boom, that's your little ticket. (laughs) And you're saved. And you say, I got mine. That's great. I'm saved. And on some level, I mean, there is, right, a sense of, wow, that's a really nice insurance policy, a good security system where you say the right thing, you do the right thing, you believe the right thing, boom, you're saved. But that individual perspective on salvation, that hyper-focus on the individual getting it right with God or Jesus or whatever, I think that's a kind of sickness, I think that it's a kind of sickness in our culture as well where there's this hyper-focus on the individual and their particular needs, what they want, what what we deserve, that we should indulge ourselves, that we are uh, loved, that we need it, that of course we should have this thing, we should take care of ourselves. And it's this hyper-focus that says the individual and their needs trumps oftentimes, I mean, I think this is the cultural message the needs of the wider community, the interests of the wider community. And when we look around us and we see environmental destruction, we see these tremendous inequalities in the world, the widening gap between the rich and the poor, we see the violence and oppression and suffering of billions around us, I would suggest to you it is silly and absurd to think of salvation in terms of an individual, in terms of an individual being saved, getting right with the Lord, saying, I've got mine, (laughs) suckers, like, you know? (laughs) And what I want to suggest to you, and 
What I want to suggest to you is in this conversation we're having right now, that tension between the individual and sort of a communal salvation, this tension goes back a long ways. And those of you who grew up in a Christian church of some nature will know this question of are we saved by faith or are we saved by works, by what we do to bring wholeness to others, to ourselves. And that's really where I want to focus today to explore another angle of salvation, this idea that salvation or a part of what might make us whole might come from standing in solidarity with others. What do I mean by solidarity? I mean standing with or helping those who suffer, those who are vulnerable. I mean acting in favor of the well-being of others, of getting outside of our own needs, our own wants and desires to see what the world needs, what the community needs. There are people, there is a planet that needs us as allies, that needs us to stand in solidarity. This idea of salvation through Solidarity is a thread that runs through much of religious history. It runs through the Torah and the Christian scriptures and the Quran and a lot of other traditions. It's not always the thread that is highlighted, however. But the essential idea could be stated like this. No one is saved until all are saved. No one is saved until all are saved. And this idea of salvation, this perspective on salvation, pulls us out of ourselves. It invites us, even in our brokenness, to see the whole as worthy of our attention and time and efforts that this earth and its people matter. Think of the story I shared earlier about the broken truth, the one that said, you are loved. It's a beautiful truth. In some ways, it's at the heart of of universalism, this notion that you are loved, that God loves everybody, no exceptions. You are loved. But in the flip side of that, it's that half-truth, that broken truth, is the equivalent in some ways of, I've got mine, I'm good to go, I'm loved. But it's an empty truth until the other half comes into contact with it. You are loved, and so are they. I want to journey back with you a couple of thousand years to the Old Testament prophets who many of them tore apart this idea of an individual salvation um, and suggested that communal right relationship, uh, communal salvation mattered much, much more. Uh, Amos and a number of the Old Testament prophets spoke out against those who ignored and exploited the needy and the poor. And he lived during a time like today where there was this growing gap between the rich and the poor. And he felt called to remind the rich and the powerful of God's requirements for justice. It didn't matter if the letter of the religious law was followed by these people. It mattered if moral behavior was being enacted in the community. Listen to what he said nearly 3,000 years ago, and you will recognize some of these words. And he speaks in this passage as if he were God, taking on the imaginative qualities of God, speaking to this people out of right relationship with one another. Here's what he says. I hate, I despise your religious feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. 
Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take me away from the noise of your songs, from the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos the prophet is saying simply, salvation is not about empty religious ritual. It is about standing with the weak and oppressed and hungry so that justice might reign across the land. Nearly 800 years later, after the prophet Amos spoke these words, a Jewish rabbi And the same sort of imaginative space was caught by these words and their power. And he said to his Jewish community, all of this religious and legalistic rigmarole is nonsense. What really matters is caring for outcasts, for the poor, for the crippled, for women, for those who are different. What matters is standing in solidarity with them. This was the path to salvation, he suggested, bringing the kingdom of God into being right here, right now. And he was challenged by those in his religious community. They said, Rabbi, tell us, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you love your neighbor as yourself? You serve your neighbor. You listen to your neighbor. You stand in solidarity with your neighbor when he or she needs help. 2,000 years after Jesus lived, guess who else was caught up in this idea of salvation through solidarity? Martin Luther King, Jr. Although his work started just with civil rights, it rapidly expanded, and he began to speak and dream like an Old Testament prophet. He was called so by a number of people, and he began to call America to account. He could tell. He could tell that many of us were holding tightly to a broken truth, a truth that said, you are loved. But the we was too limited. And so he challenged our moral compass, saying we are not a great or blessed nation as long as poverty and inequality and violence stretch from sea to shining sea. And he stood in solidarity with millions in this country and around the world. And his final campaign, where many turned against him, was the poor people's campaign. This campaign where he called for this revolution of values. The Poor People's Campaign, he said, was his last greatest dream, his attempt, I would say, to pull together those two pieces of broken truth. You are loved, and so are they, and there's consequences when you really digest and believe that. People need to be treated fair and have a living wage, and what saves them is not some afterlife, but a roof over their head and medical care that is adequate for their needs and having a voice in matters that impact their lives. So he stood with people in, this poor peop- in the Poor People's Campaign. He stood with, in his words, Negroes and Native Americans and Hispanics and Appalachian whites and many other marginalized people. 
He believed it was time for an economic bill of rights. I would suggest that what King was saying, in effect, was my salvation, our salvation, the country's salvation, the world's salvation, depends upon everyone being saved by a living wage, by a home, by work that is meaningful, and yet people have time to bring out the gifts and blessings they might offer the wider community. It was about saving people for the here and now. It was a dream for massive change. It was a dream born out of a faith in a liberating God who calls one human family to the beloved community. So what we learn from the prophets and from Jesus and from Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others is that if we are indeed God's children and understand that however it works for you, and if we believe that God loves everyone, no exceptions, then we need to model that love. And that's what will save us. We must strive to stand in solidarity with others, with the earth, with immigrants, with the GBLT community. And of course, we're busy people, we're parents. There are times and seasons in our lives where we can't do this all the time. It's a piece of salvation when we stand in solidarity with others. So how does this relate to all of us? Let me tell you. February 12th, it's a Saturday, we are offering a day of service. We are attempting to do a thousand hours of service by members of this faith community out in the wider community, building house, a house for Habitat for Humanity, serving food at Simpson Shelter. There are a number of projects that are coming in. We have intergenerational projects. We have something we hope for everyone. And if you have ideas of a service project we could do on February 12th, uh, please let us know. It's a first step. We're not saving the world, but we're entering into deeper relationship with people in the community. We are beginning through this day of service to stand in solidarity with others, to stand on the side of love, and more importantly, we will start to see ourselves differently. We will start to understand our calling differently by doing this work. You'll be able to sign up for the day of service on January 30th and February 6th, after the 9.30 service, there was this, you good-hearted people swarmed down to the hub, and we didn't have sign-ups yet. So you can't sign up until the, the end of January, the first week in February. Where I'm pointing to with all of this is that salvation is ultimately about a dream of wholeness. It is about a dream of personal and collective wholeness. And many, many men and women have carried this dream. I am reminded of the story in the book of Genesis of Joseph and his brothers, where they plot to uh, kill him, to get rid of him. And they say, here comes the dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him. And we shall see what will become of his dream. What will become of that dream? that dream of wholeness that lies in front of us in bits and pieces spoken today by prophets who surround us, what will become of that dream? May we practice salvation. 
May we pick up our piece of that dream and learn to stand and serve in solidarity. May it be so. And amen.